William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, once prophesied that the chief dangers that would confront the future of the faith would be a Christianity without Jesus and the Holy Spirit, forgiveness without repentance, salvation preached without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven preached with no warning of hell. Indeed, the closing days of the church age will be increasingly tense and deceptive, demanding that believers stay in faith, always looking at circumstances through the filter of faith rather than succumbing to human reasoning and dire predictions. When we persist in believing God in spite of discouraging circumstances, God can do the seemingly impossible for us and through us. As another man of God, faith apostle Smith Wigglesworth used to say, don't be moved by what you see or hear. Be moved only by what you believe. He often said, faith is an act. Yes, faith is action. Action shows we're not passive. We're not sitting on a fence. We really do believe God's promises. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Hello, I'm Christine Dark. As we navigate through this rapidly changing world, which is headed towards all the tumultuous scenes described in the book of Revelation, it's vitally important that we strive to stay in faith, moment by moment. As our faith is constantly challenged, we have to believe that our faith will not fail, but that the Lord is able to sustain us and preserve us. An important forerunner of the modern revival movement, Britain Smith Wigglesworth, was a believer whose faith was constantly challenged, but he taught himself to overcome. And we can learn from him and many others because there's nothing impossible with God. All the limitations are with us and our unbelief. Wigglesworth used to say, Great faith is the product of great fights. Great testimonies are the outcome of great tests. And great triumphs can only come out of great trials and battles. Amen. Well, we must expand our experiences with God to the point that we are fully convinced that with God all things are possible and nothing is ever impossible. I'm believing to maintain an active faith to care for our bodies, our livelihoods, our families, and to face the difficulties of the future. But today, when any sickness, disability, virus, or infirmity comes along, the vast majority of people totally put their faith in the medical world. And I would be the first to admit that God does use doctors and nurses, but let's not forget that the Lord is foremost our great physician. In Smith Wigglesworth's day, a woman had heard of people receiving healings at a church where he was preaching. So she came and said to Wigglesworth, What can you do for me? 
I've had 16 operations and my eardrums have been taken out. In fact, she was so deaf that she couldn't have heard a cannon boom. Bugglesworth answered, God has not forgotten how to make eardrums. So he anointed the woman with oil and prayed, asking the Lord to replace her eardrums. But the woman remained totally deaf while watching other people getting healed and rejoicing. Had God forgotten to be gracious, as Psalm 77 verse 9 asks? Wasn't his power just the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, the woman came back to church the next night and announced, Tonight I have come to believe God. And Wigglesworth said, Take care that you don't come any other way. So he prayed again and commanded that her ears be healed in the name of Jesus. This time she believed, and the moment she believed, she heard. Then she ran and jumped on a chair and began to preach. Later, a pen was dropped, and she heard it hit the floor. So with God, all things are possible. God can heal, and the Creator can recreate. Consider the account of the man in John chapter 9 who was born blind. Jesus told the man, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus spat on the ground and made some mud and applied the clay to the man's eyes. Then Jesus told him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Yes, Jesus had created eyeballs for the man. After all, we humans were made from the dust of the earth so Jesus, as creator in the flesh, had not forgotten how to create eyes, which, I'm told, are some of the most complex of all the organs in our fearfully and wonderfully designed bodies. Now, my dear friends, it's especially important that we stay constantly in faith because God is bringing on the birth pains that signal the end of the church age and the rapture followed by the great tribulation period of the last days. The Bible teaches in 2 Timothy 3.13 that evil will grow worse and worse. And just recently, a document published by a pro-abortion coalition of members of the European Parliament identified as enemies what they called religious extremist organizations, evangelicals who oppose abortion policies. The parliamentary group decried the rise of ultra-conservatives and Catholics who are pro-life, and the group promotes abortion as a human right across the European Union. Various Christian organizations in Europe were blacklisted as anti-gender religious extremists. But all the turmoil going on today is nothing compared to the horrific scenarios foretold in the book of Revelation. The spreading of the coronavirus may not be one of the seven plagues mentioned in the book of Revelation. I believe it's mild compared to the terrors that will be outpoured during the Great Tribulation period in the future. However, corona and other plagues such as Ebola in recent years are surely foreshadows and forewarnings of the plagues to come in the very last days. The world has been caught short and suddenly realizes how fragile everything truly is. Britain said to evangelist Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, that 
He's not welcome to preach in venue after venue. And what were the consequences? Well, God closed down all the big venues during the lockdowns. You see, God is not mocked. Yet the Almighty is seeking for intercessors to stand in the gap to make up the hedge of protection over all of our nations and Israel. I believe the Bible teaches that the church will be completed and absent during the time of God's great tribulation. That's foretold in the book of Daniel in Jeremiah 30 verse 7 and the book of Revelation. So in the meantime, it's vital that we receive a greater burden, a greater faith to preach the gospel before the emergence of the anti-Messiah. Let's put our faith into action quickly. The powers of darkness are stirred because they know their time is short. The demonic realms also know the Bible prophecies. But by contrast, it's such a shame that Bible prophecy is not being taught at most theological seminaries. Eschatology, the study of the end times, is tragically a neglected field of study. Theologians seem to think we have all the time in the world, but their short-sightedness results in disobedience to the Lord's great commission. Instead of anticipating the Lord's soon return, the average believer gets caught up in the cares of this world and is sidetracked into social reform, climate change, campaigns for world peace, and so on and so forth, rather than just preaching the simplicity of the gospel and making disciples, which is all that we're called to do. To neglect Bible prophecy is to disregard large segments of this word, even though we're commanded to preach the Bible in its entirety. Revelation 19.10 declares, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Furthermore, Bible prophecy is part of the ministry of warning people. And, of course, it's also a source of comfort as we see the world falling apart. We know the Lord is coming again for us. But when Bible prophecy is neglected, the church begins to stress a social gospel rather than the necessity of regeneration, the new birth. I find it to be a great irony that the Orthodox Jews in Israel talk all the time about the coming of the Messiah. So why aren't Christians talking about the second coming of Jesus? Most Christians, I dare say, can't even explain the millennium, which is the prophesied thousand-year rule of King Messiah that's foretold in Revelation chapter 20, verses 5 and 7. Lack of knowledge of Bible prophecy leads to a misunderstanding about Bible doctrine in general and the necessity to preach the Savior. Take, for example, China. A visiting Christian leader of China spoke in a church in California, and at the conclusion of the service, a college student asked him, Why do you need Christianity in China when you have the profound teachings of Confucius in your history. But the Chinese preacher answered three reasons. First of all, he said, Confucius was only a teacher and Jesus is a savior. China needs a savior more than China needs a teacher. Secondly, he said, Confucius is dead. 
and Jesus is alive. China needs a living Savior. And the third reason, one day Confucius will stand before Jesus to be judged. China needs to know Jesus as Savior before China meets him as judge. Amen. So faith is an act. Faith is active. God expects believers to be overcomers in this life. An overcomer is a believer who succeeds with God's help in dealing with or gaining control of problems and difficulties. We either train ourselves to be biblical overcomers or we will be overcome by the pressures and deceptions all around us. In the Lord's messages to the churches that he dictated to the Apostle John in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, he made many wonderful promises to the overcomers, but he made no promises to those who failed to overcome. Jesus made mention of the overcomers many times in his epistles to the churches in the book of Revelation. And in studying these passages, I learned that the great British theologian and Bible commentator, Dr. Adam Clark, was inspired to study Eastern literature by reading a book on Eastern stories. And one was a parable that went like this. In a certain place, there was a steep and narrow pass leading to a summit where a spring sent forth streams of living waters. And by the spring stood a tree bearing golden fruit. And the wind in the tree's branches produced enchanting music. Whosoever might force his way up to the summit would be rewarded with this spectacular sight and the fruit. But if he halted or attempted to turn back, he would drop dead instantly. Well, thousands made the trial, but none has succeeded. At last, an adventurous young man determined to risk winning the prize. He asked a person stationed at the foot of the mountain what was the real difficulty and how it could be overcome. He was assured that there was no real physical danger whatsoever, but that as he climbed, he would be assailed by discouraging and threatening voices. But all he had to do was boldly go forward, disregarding all negative voices. So, resolving not to listen, the young man steeled himself for the climb. And the moment he began the ascent, the negative voices began mocking him and jeering. And as he stumbled on skulls and bones of those who had perished in the way, a voice implored him to take warning and to pause. Sometimes he was at the point of stopping, but he pressed on. And as he neared the top, a chorus of negative shouts almost stunned him. But he pressed his hands against his ears and finally gained the summit. Then every voice that had assaulted him broke forth in the loudest praise. Hallelujah. The moral of the story is that we have to press on, not listening to the world's negativity, but only following the Word of God. We can't deceive ourselves that somehow there's a middle ground to sit on the fence. The New Testament doesn't teach that there is any middle ground. My experience of walking with the Lord for more than 50 years is that it's possible to overcome many temptations and 
potentially dangerous situations. But every day we have to stay humble before God. As 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 teaches, people who think they are standing firm should be careful that they don't fall. Our position is that we live each day, not in our own strength, but by the faith of the indwelling Son of God. The good news is that this word teaches that Jesus has already defeated Satan and his defeat is irreversible. We stand on the victory ground of Jerusalem's cross. It is finished. The work of atonement is accomplished. The Savior has prevailed for time and eternity. And there is nothing Satan can do to change that fact of Bible history. Nothing needs to be added to the victory Jesus has already accomplished for us and nothing can nullify it. In fact, Colossians 2.15 declares that at the cross, Jesus' sacrificial death, his victory over sin, disarmed the principalities and the powers and made a public show of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus has already given a total public defeat of Satan. And we have to decide in our spirits, how great is our God for such a Savior? The terrorists say their God is greater. In fact, that's their battle cry. But who is greater, the God of Israel or the gods of other religions? We declare there is no God but Abba, and Jesus, Yeshua, is his messenger's son. The scriptures say that God has exalted the name of Jesus above all others. But Satan still doesn't believe he is defeated. This is because Satan suffered some sort of brain damage way back in the Garden of Eden. It was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3 that Satan would bruise the heel of Messiah, but that Messiah would crush Satan's head. And that victory was signed, sealed, and delivered forever at the cross. But brain-damaged Satan somehow thinks he can still win. And his current desperation is telling on him as time draws nearer to the return of Jesus to rule this world. So we declare the God of Israel is the real God. There was a TV show years ago when a panel had to guess who was the real person from two imposters. The point of revelation came when the real person was asked to stand up while the imposters remained seated. Well, the real God stood up in 1948 at the rebirth of Israel and also in 1967 when in fulfillment of Bible prophecy, the Jews recaptured their capital, Jerusalem. And in 1976, when Israel was blessed with the most daring rescue operation in history at Antebi Airport in Uganda. And God continues to stand up and he will stand up big time again in the future in the war described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. For many years in Jerusalem, we prayed for God to bind the evil principality that's behind today's global terrorism. Ours was definitely an act of faith to engage in spirit-led spiritual warfare. The Jewish people teach us to use the Psalms in spiritual warfare. And some of the key verses that we used were from Psalm 149, which proclaims 
that our high praises of God are able to bind the spiritual kings with chains and fetters of iron to bring upon the powers of darkness God's decreed judgments. And that psalm declares that this honor have all of his saints. Praise the Lord. Yes, we know our nations are deserving of the judgments that we're already experiencing. God's word teaches that when we rebel and stray from God, he sends enemies in our midst who are like thorns in our sides and who sting us like hornets. This is a loving God. He allows these judgments as a wake-up call to prod us to return to him. Therefore, according to 2 Chronicles 7.14, intercessors have been returning to the Lord by humbling ourselves, by praying, seeking his face, purposing to turn from our wicked national ways. And when we do humble ourselves and repent and seek his face, the Lord promises to do three wonderful things. He will hear from heaven, he said. He will forgive our national sins and heal our land. So let's continue to extol the high praises of God in spiritual warfare because we have an enemy that's operating differently from times past. We're in a World War III, and often the enemy's tactic is to strike at soft targets. Israel's famous Dry Bones cartoonist painted the proverbial picture worth a thousand words in a cartoon that said in the past, a soldier had a uniform and a serial number, but now all the terrorists need are a driver's license and a knife. But thank God, he says the battle is his, and as intercessors, as watchmen on the wall, our job is to lift up the high praises of the one true God. In the Bible, King Jehoshaphat knew that. He sent the praisers and the worshipers ahead of the armies of the Lord. And there are so many passages in the Bible of high praises that we could send forth today. But I'll simply call upon verses I found in my daily Bible reading. You see, when we read through the word of God on a daily basis, there's always food for the day. And there's always weaponry for the moment. And here's a great passage I discovered in 1 Chronicles 29.10. I love this. David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, God of Israel, our Father, forever and forever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in heaven and on earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Well, getting back to 2 Chronicles 7, 14, in the preceding verse, God says, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send a plague amongst my people, then if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So that preceding verse 13 speaks of God himself sending a plague as a judgment. That whole passage teaches us that it's vitally important for believers to engage in identificational repentance to stop a plague or a virus or any national calamity. One of my friends on Facebook commented that he didn't know what is identificational repentance. 
So it's vitally important that we not only learn it, but practice it as the Bible teaches us. Remember, faith is an act. An example is in the Torah, Aaron the high priest didn't just stand by, but he took his incense burner, which is a symbol of prayer and praise, and he stood between the living and the dead to make atonement, and a plague was stopped. Daniel the prophet also engaged in identificational repentance on behalf of his people, and his prayer was a model prayer. In Daniel chapter 9, he confessed to God that God was perfectly righteous in bringing calamity and judgments upon his people because, as Daniel said in verse 14, we obeyed not his voice. Then follows his petition in verses 15 to 19. And as you read this, you might identify with it by putting in the names of your own capitals, your own countries and people groups. But also, don't forget that this prayer was originally for the people of Israel. So we keep them foremost in our prayers as we pray always for the peace of Jerusalem. And now, O Lord, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by thy name. For we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousness but for thy great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hearken and do. Defer not for thine own sake. O my God, for thy city and thy people are called by thy name. Let's put our city's names in there. Thank you, Lord. Note that Daniel was a righteous man, but he didn't pray, Lord, they, your people have sinned. But he identified corporately with his people by confessing, we have sinned. Therefore, identificational repentance is corporate prayer that identifies with and confesses the sins of a person's family, a people group, a church or a city, a county or a nation. Because gross national sins especially impede healing and revival. God responds when we humbly pray and acknowledge our sins that are defiling the land. The shedding of innocent blood defiles the land. The purpose of our identificational repentance is to heal the land according to the promises of 2 Chronicles 7.14. We're surely called to live out the biblical practice of this identificational repentance, which is such a neglected truth. But in principle, it teaches the opening of the floodgates of revival to bring the much-needed healing to our lands. Faith is an act. And isn't this exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross? He bore our sins. He identified with our griefs, even though he was without sin. Amen. So can we cry out that we repent on behalf of the blood from the millions of abortions that has defiled our lands? Can we cry out that we repent from many of our nations having tampered with the institution of marriage, something sacred in God's eyes? There is hope when we return by faith to the Lord. So remember, faith 
is active. And as an act of faith, I ask you, Lord, to create in us a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Save our lands. Amen and amen. Well, I've enjoyed being with you today. And meanwhile, if you have any comments or questions, I'd love to share with you on social media or at our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our weekly updates. And so until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.